America is divided. We get it. Over the last decade or so, we've heard that phrase over and over and over. And in fact, it seems to really be the only thing that anybody can agree on is that we are divided. Um, and the people of America, not just us, but people of nations all over the world, um, divided probably more than we've ever been, at least in the past hundred years, perhaps. Um, and we ask ourselves all the time, what can we do about it? The whole overriding premise of this program is to attempt to figure that out. But perhaps we can't really even begin to answer that question until we can really figure out exactly what it is that's dividing us in the first place. Um, yep, plenty of us already think we know. Many people in America would argue that our main division is political, um, and maybe it is. Certainly, that's the most obvious uh, division among us between Republicans and Democrats, especially since we literally go to polling booths every two years and voluntarily divide ourselves into two camps. But to believe that that's really the only division is quite honestly, kind of taken the lazy way out. There are a bunch of other divisions also. Um, there are those who argue with plenty of historical context that America's biggest divisions are racial. Um, we've also seen evidence through a lot of political campaigning recently that would indicate that much of our division is about nationalist and xenophobic uh, issues. Certainly that case could be made um, not only here, but in lots of parts of Europe, like the UK, Hungary, Germany, all of those places have in the past decade seen noticeable growth for nationalist parties. They've also seen a lot of growth in those same countries um, amongst farther left-leaning parties, too, socialist parties at times. Um, oftentimes, those are led increasingly by younger voters. So, hey, maybe the biggest divisions are generational. Or are they socioeconomic? Or are we just really divided between people with blue eyes and brown eyes and we just hadn't figured that out yet? Whatever it is. It's deeper than just Republican versus Democrat. And if we got any hope of solving that problem, we first have to define it. I'm Clay Aiken, and this week Politicon's honored to get some insight on this very issue from a man who has been called the master of life's big questions, Harvard professor and political philosopher Michael Sandel. The term world-renowned gets thrown around way too carelessly, way too often, but it is more than appropriate for Dr. Sandel. For years, he's been one of the most watched speakers on TED Talks. His ongoing series for the BBC, The Public Philosopher and The Global Philosopher, invite live public discussion on the most serious current issues with participants from over 30 countries. And that's been replicated by him uh, in national broadcast uh, in countries like Brazil and Japan too. His taught seminar is the most popular course in Harvard University history, and it attracts over 1,200 students at overflow capacity every time it's offered. And in his latest book, The Tyranny of Merit, he makes the argument that the system of meritocracy may be what's upending our world. Perhaps we are, in the long run, really just divided between winners and losers. I'll ask him how he thinks those systems should be fixed. Should hard work not be rewarded? How much has globalization fueled the rise of merit-based societal divisions? Is any country in the world moving away from this division and towards unity? And if so, can he tell us their secret and answer the question, how the heck are we going to get along? Now, are you in London now? I'm in, in Spain, Spain, in Seville, Oh, Spain. are you teaching there now? Well, no, I'm on sabbatical, and so just doing some writing and traveling. Oh, well, listen, I am fascinated. Dan, who's our producer, who I think reached out to you or your publisher or whoever to get you on, is a longtime fan of yours, and I am now a very much a new uh, devotee, really, because I have been, I was up at, I was, I read some of your stuff yesterday, and then I was up at six this morning, and I wanted to get back into learning more, about, and I'm totally fascinated by, like, your whole life period, um, and what you get to do uh, for a living to get people to talk. I mean, it's like I want to be you when I grow up, but I'm well past being able to, uh, <laughs> I'm too old to say that anymore, but I love that, I mean, you have sort of, your career is getting people to discuss really tricky topics and think about things in ways that I don't think we're very good at doing anymore. Um, and I think you kind of agree we're not good at that anymore, yeah? I very much agree. And so really what I, I 
try to do is, well, I'm a political philosopher. I think of myself as a teacher, but I've always wanted to connect philosophy to the world and to promote dialogue and to help people reflect on uh, their moral convictions, especially as they bear on politics. I mean, so philosophy, philosophers sometimes get the luxury of not having to answer questions because they answer questions with questions, right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Don't That's do that true. to me today too much. <laughs> but, but I am fascinated. I mean, where, where this goes, it goes, and I'm, I'm excited about it. But we de- definitely want to talk about your book with um, the, the Tyranny of Merit. Um, because one of the things that we've talked about a lot on this show over the past year and a half now um, is the division and how everyone agrees that it exists and everybody knows it's horrible and it's the worst it's been in a long time. And I think most people have a theory about why we're divided, um, but I don't know that I believe any of them. (laughs) personally. And I don't know that many people are doing a good enough job at digging down beneath it more than just, oh, well, we're divided politically. You got the conservatives over here, the liberals over here. And as someone who lives in a very purple state, red-leaning purple state, around a lot of people who vote in different ways than I do, I find myself saying, okay, I can really see how this isn't necessarily about Republicans versus Democrats. Sometimes it's about right. rich versus poor. Sometimes it is about race. Sometimes it is about nationality, but not always. Um, yes. And you talk a little bit, you touch on some of that division in the tyranny of merit and how we're divided yes. by, and I, I don't like this term because I always end up on the loser side of it, just generally in my <laughs> life. But you talk about being <laughs> divided really into winners and losers um, in yes. this system. So can you just tell folks who are listening what you mean by that? Yes. In, I think this is the heart of what's driven us apart, Clay. In recent decades, the divide between winners and do. Let me say that again. In recent decades, the divide between winners and losers has been deepening, poisoning our politics, setting us apart. This has partly to do with the widening inequalities of income and wealth. But it's not only that. It has also to do with changing attitudes towards success that have accompanied the widening inequalities. Those who've landed on top after four decades of globalization, have come to believe that their success is their own doing and that they therefore deserve the bounty that the market showers upon them. And by implication, that those who struggle, those left behind, must deserve their fate too. This, I think, is at the heart of our division. And this way of thinking about success is connected to Here's the paradox, a seemingly attractive idea, the idea of meritocracy, the idea that if chances are equal, the winners deserve their winnings. And in the book, The Tyranny of Merit, I show how this way of thinking about success, this way of understanding who gets to rise, has been unfolding in recent decades and really lies at the heart of the anger and resentment that's driving us apart. Clay. Right. So is there a version of any anywhere of meritocracy that does work? And the reason I, that came to my mind is because you said, yeah. you put a qualifier in your statement where you said, if things are equal. And I think a lot of people yes. would argue that, you know, maybe that's part of the problem and part of the reason that meritocracy has not worked. Because truly at the foundation of it, no one, there has never been an equal playing field for a lot of people. In a utopian right. society, if things were all equal, could meritocracy right. work or you think it would still have inherent problems? I think it would still be flawed. But it's important to begin by recognizing the point you just raised. Right. Chances are not truly equal. Uh, it, even though, even though everyone professes commitment to the idea of equal opportunity, we're a long way from it. Look at higher education. In Ivy League universities, despite generous financial aid policies, there are more students from families in the top 1% than there are from families in the entire bottom half of the income scale combined. So it's clear 
we don't live up to the meritocratic principles we profess. Is that a, is that a result right. of, uh, what is it, legacy students? Or do you know why that ha- I mean, I'm not going to ask you to call your own yeah. university out, but, but is there a reason no, no, that that fair happens? enough. Yes. Legacy admissions is part of it, and we should get rid of that. But it's, it's not the only thing or even the main thing. It's that, well, here, let's take a step back. Meritocracy is an idea presented itself as a liberating, egalitarian alternative to a class-based aristocratic society where where you wound up depended on the accident of your birth. That's a traditional aristocratic society. And so meritocracy came along as a principle saying everyone should be free to rise regardless of the accident of your birth. And so we need to create genuinely equal opportunities and offer everyone a chance to compete for admission to colleges and universities and to rise. That's the idea. But what happened was that affluent, privileged parents figured out how to pass their advantages onto their kids. In a meritocracy, that's not by bequeathing them huge estates and titles as in an aristocracy. It's by giving them a big leg up in the educational and cultural advantages to compete for admission to the universities that enable people to get ahead in this system. So that's really how it's happened. And you, you touch on, I don't know if at, at some point you have touched on, I know, the, the few examples of folks who have sometimes broken through that and been successful despite, you know, their upbringing in certain ways. And I believe yeah. one of the examples that I recall was with regard to football players in Europe. Um, how, how, you know, if, if it's really about hard work and not about talent, then why do we pay? Like... I got, I got, I became successful only by, as you say, the luck of the draw at birth. I was able to sing, and for that reason, I was able to, yeah. you know, make a career out of it. But it's interesting when you were talking about the uh, luck of birth that people rec- don't recognize that isn't always necessarily just being born to wealth. But you're right. born. We're all born with inherent things that give us more opportunity than somebody else might. might be the color of your skin. In many cases, it is. It might be your sex or your gender. It might be a talent or whatnot. But there's more than just being born to a rich family that gives some people a leg up, right? Absolutely. And talent, talent is a big part of it. The talented, and one of the arguments of my book, The Tyranny of Merit, is that we should be a little bit humble in the face of talents, that enable us to succeed, however much effort we might devote and hard work. And take the sports example that you mentioned. Take LeBron James. He's a great basketball player, and he makes tens of millions of dollars. Now, a meritocracy would say, if everyone has a chance to be a great basketball player, then LeBron and those who who succeed deserve their winnings. It's their doing. They've earned it. But what this misses, what this misses is the luck involved in being blessed with certain talents in the first place. And not only that, is it really my doing or is it really LeBron's doing, to to stick with the sports analogy, that he lives in a society and at a time when people love basketball? If LeBron had lived back in the days of the Renaissance, they didn't care that much about basketball. They cared more about fresco painters. So there are two elements of luck in being blessed with the talents that our society prizes. One, we're lucky to have them. It's not all our own doing. I could work and practice basketball 24-7 and never Me be as too. good as LeBron. <laughs> right? And, I'm, and I, never pra- I don't practice the singing. I, and I've always said, don't say, don't. I didn't do anything for it. My parents had the skill. I was able to do it myself. So I agree with you on that. It's right, a it gift. Totally is. There's an element of gift. And once we notice, as you said, that it's a, a gift, whether it's a talent, musical talent or athletic talent or whatever it may be, that, that reminds us of the luck and good fortune that help us on our way. It also reminds us of our indebtedness to those who make our achievements possible. Family, teachers, 
community, country, the times in which we live. And noticing these forms of luck and indebtedness can induce a certain humility. And this humility, I think, is missing among many of the successful today. There's a tendency among the successful in a meritocratic society like ours to inhale too deeply yeah, right. their own success, <laughs> to forget. Inhale too deep. I mean, but I, as you're talking about that, I am sitting here, my brain's spinning and thinking, it is interesting, people always want to know why Hollywood is so liberal. Um, and and yeah. listen, I shouldn't, have put, I shouldn't put that in air quotes because the truth is a very large percentage of those folks who work in that industry are progressive um, in their thinking. And yeah. I do wonder sometimes if there is a psychology behind those folks who got incredibly wealthy off of playing pretend, <laughs> you know, and have mm. recognized yeah. that they didn't necessarily work as much for it, but they had they were born with a gift, either as a musician or a, or an actor, or they lucked into it, and perhaps maybe they understand the the inherent flaws in that whole system. Um, doesn't make them doesn't make okay. them give it up. <laughs> I'm not giving anything up, but it does <laughs> it does make from them perhaps think about how lucky they've been in their lives, whereas other industries that do require more um, stereotypical work, uh, mm. people don't see the luck involved in where, where they got. Right. And, and I think the, the more we're aware of the role of luck and of our indebtedness for our achievements the more open we're likely to be to a sense of obligation to the common good, to those who struggle, to those less fortunate than us. And one of the troubles we face today is that the more successful elites and professionals believe that their success is their own doing, the, the less the tendency to believe that they are indebted and therefore have an obligation to the common good. And this gets back to a question you asked earlier, Clay, that I haven't really answered directly, which is, even if we could achieve a perfect meritocracy where chances were truly equal, would that be a just society? Would it be a good society? No, because then people really would be able <laughs> to believe that right. they had earned their success. And meritocracy, even a perfect one, would be corrosive of the common good, of solidarity, of a sense of obligation to the wider society, because it, it would strengthen people's convictions. I've earned it, therefore I deserve so it. So what then is the better system? The better system... There are two parts to this question, obviously. Uh, the next one will obviously be how do we get right. there. But, but just in general, without right. having to go break my brain yet, <laughs> um, what do you think okay. the better system would be? Well, two, two parts uh, to the answer. The better system as individuals, as persons, as human beings, is to rethink our meritocratic hubris, those of us who have enjoyed some measure of success, recognize the role of luck, and, uh, and find the humility that leads to a more generous attitude to those who struggle. That's on a personal okay. level. But this is also a broader political problem. And the broader political problem is that the political message we've heard from the mainstream political parties for the last three or four decades has been, if you want to compete and win in the global economy, go to college. What you earn depends on what you can learn. You can make it if you try. You've oh, yeah. heard these slogans. We've all heard them again and again and again. There's an insult implicit in that seemingly inspiring offer. The insult is this. If you are struggling in this economy, and if you haven't been to college, the implication is your failure is your fault. You didn't improve yourself by getting a college right. degree. That's the implication. And so it's no wonder that also we need to remember that most Americans don't have a four-year college degree. Nearly two-thirds of Americans right. don't. So right. moving to the politics about what we do, how we shift, 
We, it's folly to create an economy that sets as a necessary condition of dignified work and a decent life a college degree that most people don't have. So my, argu the, my argument in the book, The Tyranny of Merit for Politics, is that we should focus less on arming people for meritocratic competition, scrambling up the ladder of success, even as the rungs on the ladder grow further and further apart. Focus less on that and focus more on the dignity of work, focusing more on according respect and social esteem and honor to everyone who contributes to the common good through the work they do, the families they raise, the communities they serve, whether or not they have prestigious credentials and a college degree. But it's no accident that one of the deepest divisions in politics and in voting these days is between those who have and don't have a four-year college degree. We saw this in the election of Trump. We saw this in Britain with the vote for Brexit. So I think we need to pay attention to this. And I think we need to shift to a politics based on the dignity of work rather than a politics focused on scrambling up the ladder of success by telling people to get a college education. So my mind is sort of blown here. And that's why I'm, like I told you, I was so pumped to talk to you because I knew that I was going to have a ah, hundred questions. But as you're talking, yeah. I'm thinking, first of all, Sherrod Brown, Iowa, Ohio Senator would, would love you because if you did not already, because yes. the dignity of work was, is, is really his platform. Yes. Um, He's onto this. Yes. He's onto but, this. But it also makes me think about a, the shift between our political parties that happened sometime in the uh, last quarter of the last century, um, where mm -hmm. it used to be that, that Republicans were the, uh, I mean, they were the elites in, in, many, in many regards. George H.W. Bush literally right. uh, came from a, you know, and married into and was a part of it, a very elite, elite structure. George W. Bush went to Yale. Republicans were seen as sort of that elite group. Um, they wanted lower taxes. Democrats were the working class uh, party. And right. somewhere, I don't know if it happened during Bush or Clinton or whenever, there was definitely a shift. And now we are in a system where the party that seems to want to, um, or at least says they want to do more for the working class, uh, whether that be fiscally or, you know, especially with tax policy, also is the right. same party that is in the opinions of many people, me included, almost insulting that working class by saying things like, no, your coal job isn't good enough and we're going to train you for a better job. And, you know, I said to people <laughs> all the time when I was running for Congress, they don't want to be trained for no damn better job. They don't want to have their livelihood insulted as if though it's not good enough or that they're not going to be, as you say, successful if they don't go to college. And we've put so much emphasis even now on um, Democrats have put so much emphasis now on uh, making college more affordable, making it more accessible, making sure you can go to community college free. Some of the most progressive people in the party, like Bernie Sanders, have have you know emphasized the need for at least a two year degree of some kind in order to be successful. This conflict between you know a a traditional Republican party that has typically been more supportive of, you know, the more wealthy Americans, yet mm -hmm. somehow appeals mostly to the more impoverished Americans. And then the Democrat Party, mm -hmm. which yeah. used traditionally has been the party of the working class, but somehow has now also become the elitist party also. Right. Are they, can they fix those things? Can Democrats actually figure out, wait a second, I should not be talking about college so damn much. Um, I, I need to, to speak to the audience that I'm trying to serve or like, what's the problem here? I mean, you, you what the is going on? <laughs> You're onto something really important, Clay. The Democratic Party has lost the allegiance of the working class. Traditionally, Working class people voted for Democrats, and Democrats represented them, their outlook, their interests against the privileged, against big business, against the wealthy. And 
over the last 25 years or so, this has flipped. By 2016, when Trump was elected, the Democratic Party had become more identified in its outlook, in its interests, in its values, with the professional classes, the well-educated, credential classes, then with the blue-collar voters who traditionally constituted its base. And this is a fundamental fact about our politics that the Democratic Party had better figure out how to fix if it's to have much of a future. Now, the good news, if you can call it that, is that although Trump appealed to those many without a college education, he didn't govern in a way that served their interests. Uh, he tried to get rid of their health care. His tax cut was mainly a tax cut for the wealthy. But, but he did speak to the sense that many people, working people have, the sense of resentment and anger and humiliation against credentialed elites, against meritocratic elites, against the well, professional classes. He did do that. Well, that leads me to, to ask the, the very pointed question that I want to ask, So, uh, which is, you know, I, I read your, your writing, I watch your videos, and I hear everything you're saying, and I say, amen. Thank God someone has, you know, I... I love what you've you've written about and talk about but all i can think of is yeah anybody who needs to listen to this is going to say oh i'm not listening to that harvard elite ivy league professor you know how if 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 the answers are only being talked about in circles that are abhorrent to the people who need to hear them you know what i mean yeah. um if if the politicians who have the same ideas and the same thoughts as you, like some folks like Elizabeth Warren, for example, who, who you know, probably fall, you probably agree, falls very similar, um, aligned, similarly aligned to you. Um, if they have become viewed by that other group, by that group of people who are the working class as elite and therefore anathema to anything they want to listen to anyway, how does this message get how do we how do we make that change? I'm now to that question of how do we get there if we can't if the people who are the messengers, so to speak, for this party are not the right ones. <laughs> the messengers and the message uh, have to connect more effectively with working people, and this is what I mean by the shift to the dignity of work. One more word about college. Clay. Uh, and here I want to be clear. Making college more affordable, opening access to people who can't otherwise afford college, that's a good thing. That's a yeah. wonderful thing. But it's a mistake. It's a mistake for the Democratic Party or any politician to say the solution to four decades of wage stagnation and job loss and outsourcing is simply to tell working people to go get a college degree. That's the insult. So, uh, so what does it mean, and this is where you're pressing me rightly, what does it mean to make that shift to a political project based on the dignity of work? Well, let's stick with education for a moment. An economist at Brookings figured out that we, at the federal level, we spend $164 billion a year helping people go to college, and that's a, that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. But do you know how much we spend supporting vocational and technical training? About one billion. One billion versus 164 billion. So we woefully underinvest in those forms of learning that most people rely on to equip themselves for the but world of work of them, and to be citizens. Some of them, sorry to interrupt, but I want to get feisty with you a little bit. Some of yeah. them would say, yeah, but you know what? It doesn't matter if you train me for vocational employment because liberals have sent all my jobs overseas with their globalization in the Clinton years and the Obama years, et cetera. So, so vocational education and some of these more blue-collar jobs aren't even around anymore, especially if you're someone like a coal worker or a textile um, factory worker or some of these things. Some of these dignity of work jobs that you're talking about don't even exist anymore. And is that not a part of the problem? I mean, that's political. You're a political philosopher. So. Right. 
Well, it is a big part of the problem, and what that suggests is that the Democratic Party needs to reflect on the failed policies that uh, led the Democrats to alienate working people, including the finance-driven version of globalization that was pursued during the Clinton and Obama years. I think a large part of that, you could call it neoliberal or finance-driven ver version of globalization, encouraging outsourcing, I think that was a mistake, and we're, we're uh, reaping the bitter fruits of that now. But here's an example that, uh, well, Let's talk about Biden. Okay. Biden has been around for a long time. He's a mainstay of the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And yet, if you listen to his message, it is subtly different from the political message and rhetoric of those Democratic candidates and presidents who preceded him. In fact, He's more of a Sherrod Brown type Democrat. He, well, he is. And... Uh, he was the first Democratic nominee, Clay, in 36 years without, without an Ivy League degree. Right. The first in 36 years. I think this was a kind of a secret weapon for Biden. Oh, certainly. Amen. <laughs> Partly because it led him to be a little bit less enamored of the credentialist prejudice, the meritocratic... Uh, starry-eyed view of uh, economists and academicians. And he, he does talk more um, uh, about the dignity of work and in his policies, actually. He's been more indebted to the emphasis of a Sherrod Brown and a Bernie Sanders than to the meritocratic credentialist rhetoric of rising through you know, a prestigious college degree. And it, and it arguably got him more voters for that reason. Places I like Pennsylvania it, and Michigan and Georgia are certainly more blue-collar, right? I, I think it helped. And it's interesting, um, James Clyburn of South Carolina, the highest-ranking African-American in Congress, gave an instrumental endorsement to Biden. You remember back in the South Carolina oh, yeah. primary when Biden was on the ropes? And people didn't pay attention to this, but here's what Clyburn said when he endorsed Biden. He said, our problem is too many candidates spend time trying to let people know how smart they are <laughs> rather than trying to connect with people. And then he talked explicitly about college education. This is Clyburn. He says, what does it mean when a candidate says, you need to be able to send your kids to college? I hate to hear that, Clyburn said. I don't need to hear that because we've got people who want to be electricians. They want to be plumbers. They want to be barbers. So though he didn't put it quite this way, I think Clyburn was pushing back intuitively against the meritocratic political project that had unwittingly insulted working class voters and opened the way to Trump. And Biden sort of gets this. Well, it's, Clyburn also gets his constituents too, right? So he, he does. He understands he does. that. But but we, I think you, one could argue that there are. Democrats in the party who, like Abigail Spanberger, for example, Connor Lamb was there, um, who are in more rural, uh, ex-urban districts. Um, and then there are Democrats in the House that are in very urban districts, in Seattle or in the Bronx, etc. Um, and they have very different views um, on how the party should proceed with its legislation and, and pretty much everything. Um, but people like Joe Biden— and Abigail Spanberger, um, and Joe Manchin get attacked for being moderate. Is it moderate to do the things they want to do? I mean, that's, that's setting aside the spending bills and those types of things, but, but specifically focusing on the dignity of work. Is that moderate, or isn't it, in a way, sort of radical also? I think it could be, well, I, potentially both, but I think it could be radical. In fact, if you look at Bernie Sanders' campaigns, he did not partake of what I call in the book the rhetoric of rising, the idea that the solution to job loss and wage stagnation is for you to go out and get a college degree. He didn't partake of that. He dealt with direct with inequalities of income and wealth and power head on as structural matters. But I do think, and here's where the line between moderate and progressive or radical comes into play, if we really want to take seriously the dignity of work, we do have to talk about the message the tax system sends and the values it conveys. For example, we should ask, 
Why is it that we tax earnings from labor, from work, at a higher rate than we tax earnings from capital gains and dividends mm -hmm. and investment? Why is that? <laughs> and doesn't that mock the dignity of work? And why is it? Why is it that hedge fund managers, for example, make hundreds and hundreds of times more money than nurses or school teachers? Do we really believe, and this goes back to the whole meritocratic idea, that they deserve more because they make a contribution to the common good that's 900 times more valuable than that of a nurse or a teacher? The hedge fund managers, I mean. Right. And this should be, this should be a debate right at the center of our politics. I think that a lot of people do try to make that argument. And I mean, I, I, even, even Democrats in my own party who I disagree with on tactic often, um, I think are, are on the same page as more moderate Democrats when it comes to those issues. Uh, the problem is, in my opinion, when you start talking about those things, yes, um, they sound very reasonable, even to folks who don't vote for Democrats, even right. for conservatives, et cetera, especially the working class who, who feel, but they become so easy to target as socialism because at some point there has been an ability to misdefine, yep. <laughs> um, incorrectly define these tax policies as socialism. Granted, I, most people who spend more than 10 minutes even trying to research, recognize that back in the 50s and 60s, these golden ages that we're supposed to make America back better back um, to, uh, those, the ta highest tax rate at those times was astronomically higher um, than it is now. But there is this sense that raising taxes on the job creators is socialism, and that has allowed conservatives um, to hold on to some of those uh, working class voters that normally would be attracted to the fiscal policies of Democrats. Why is that? And is that fixable? Be, yes, it's fix, fixable. But to do so, Democrats have, first of all, to stop insulting working uh -huh. people and stop embracing credentialed elites who look down on working people. Now, one way to do this is to begin with concrete experience. This is one way to break through some of the labels that you've described. Take the experience of the pandemic. It revealed, it highlighted, the pandemic did, the experience, mm -hmm. inequalities mm -hmm. that existed in our society before the pandemic. The most dramatic of which was between those of us who could work from home and those who either lost their jobs or who, in order to perform their jobs, had to expose themselves to risk on behalf of the rest of us. But the pandemic made one thing very clear. Those of us who worked from home during the pandemic couldn't help but recognize how deeply we depend on workers we often overlook. I'm thinking not only of those working in the hospitals, but delivery workers, warehouse workers, grocery store clerks, home health care providers, child care workers. These are not the best paid or most mm. honored workers in our society. And yet, during the pandemic, we began to call them essential workers. So this could be an opening for a broader public debate about how to bring their pay and recognition into better alignment with the importance of the work they do. So, is that redistributing wealth, though? Or at least, I mean, I don't believe it is. So let me, so let me put yeah. an asterisk there. But isn't that essentially what others would call redistributing wealth to, to increase the wages of someone else on the backs of, of, of the lower paid workers, on the backs potentially of higher paid workers? Isn't that socialism? It's only redistributing wealth, Clay, if you believe that the market's verdict on who contributes most is accurate. But if you believe that, then you believe that the social value of the hedge fund manager's contribution really is 900 times more important than that of the nurse or of the school teacher. And even the most ardent advocate of the free market laissez-faire economics would be hard-pressed to make that claim. So
So the general, you are right, though, that I am suggesting a shift in our public discourse in a pretty demanding direction. See, we've outsourced to markets the moral judgment about whose contributions to the economy and to the common good matter most. I say we should reclaim for, for democratic citizens the question of whose contributions really matter. Now, is that redistribution? Well, I, you could argue it was redistribution upward that took place over the past three or four decades of finance-driven globalization when the rules were written to uh, enable the hedge fund manager to make 900 times more than a teacher. The rules were written, for example, to allow CEOs to use profits to buy back their company stock, boosting their own pay, which was so-called pay for performance. Now, that was a rule put in during the 1990s that redistributed income upward, but we didn't notice it. We didn't see it as that because we said, oh, uh, people in Wall Street, they just happen to make a lot of money. But they happen to make a lot of money because we rewrote the rules to privilege finance and we rewrote the tax system to privilege finance. So it isn't a matter of taking money that people, if you think that the market verdict defines what people really deserve, then you could oh, call God, it no. redistribution. Then you could call it redistribution. If not, you say, let's write the rules in a way that better uh, uh, aligns people's contributions with their rewards. And by the way, not only their financial rewards, but also the honor and social esteem and dignity and respect. We, is, there we not, is there not a psychology, though, behind those folks who would benefit from this system that you're talking about, for sure, yeah. but who hesitate to put any... We'll use Jeff Bezos as an example, because he <laughs> he doesn't care what I say. He's got enough money. Um, <laughs> but, but there are millions of people in America who both hate Jeff Bezos for being worth $200 billion, but also envy him and aspire to be like that? And are, is there not a psychology behind that, that restricts people from supporting rules that limit how many billions you can have or how much you can make a year simply because American society has taught us to aspire to those levels ourselves? And I may not make a billion dollars a year right now, but I don't want you to take away my ability to. Um, there, yeah. Does that not stop people from supporting some, what I think are kind of common sense uh, solutions? Isn't that, isn't, that a, isn't that a deterrent to passing some of these laws? Yes, but we need to take it on directly. And one way to do that is to acknowledge that for a long time, the American dream has seemed to be about playing the lottery, because mm -hmm. what you're talking about, aspiring maybe one day I'll be, be as rich as Jeff Bezos, that's playing the lottery. Yeah. A lottery with pretty long odds. Worse odds but, than the actual lottery. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. But we've, we've embraced that idea when we've said the American dream really is about individual upward mobility, the chance to rise. And we've always told ourselves a comforting story in America about inequality and mobility. We, we've told ourselves we don't really need to worry, we Americans, about inequality the way those Europeans do, because in America, you may be born poor, but you can always rise. Social mobility, upward mobility, one generation to the next. Whereas in Europe, they're stuck in the class of their birth. That's why they worry about inequality. We've got mobility. Problem is, we don't. <laughs> we don't. We don't. It doesn't match the facts on the ground. In, in the United States, it, uh, if you're born poor, the chance of rising to affluence, not Jeff Bezos' affluence, but top 20%, you're born poor, it's about one in, one in 12 chance. Chances are you're not even going to make it to the middle. Uh, whereas in Europe, rates of intergenerational mobility, especially in Northern Europe, are much higher 
in the United States, and that's because they are more equal societies to begin with. Let, let me just give you one other illustration, Clay. Yeah, in yeah. the United States, if you're born into a poor family, the number of generations it'll take to get up to the middle is five generations. In Denmark, it's two. In Scandinavia, it's three. Huh. And so we need to recognize that the old comforting idea that we don't need to worry about inequality of income and wealth because we can rise in America, that isn't true anymore. The American dream is alive and well and living in Copenhagen. It's in these European... <laughs> Well, okay. Well, then let's let me let me use that to segue into the next question because that's not a good stump speech, uh, Doctor. No, okay. Um, <laughs> so, but Fair but enough. but you know, Barack Obama, his his stump speech was being born to a single mother and being raised by his grandparents, and look where I got. I graduated from Harvard. I became the, uh, you know, he was able to to make those arguments, and that is an inspiring speech. John Boehner, he was raised by a father who owned a bar. Uh, Joe Biden's family was working class in Scranton, Scranton Joe. Those messages work and being able and people vote on either hope or fear, right? So if you are to acknowledge what you've just said, which I believe is true, if you're to acknowledge that, write the stump speech for me. Tell me, tell me how you get people to hear what you're saying and, and approve of your message and not call you an America-hating, uh, <laughs> you know, elitist, because you are being honest, yes, but, but how do you write a stump speech and get people to hear you when people are not willing to believe that America is not the greatest in the world right now? That's a fair test. It's a fair challenge, and here's my answer. There are two, two stump, stump speeches uh, that project hope. One, and the one we've been hearing for the past four decades, casts hope this way. I made it by attending Ivy League universities. And so if you work hard and study hard, or if your kids do, maybe they too can get into Princeton and Harvard and Stanford and rise. That's the rhetoric of rising. And that, I think, has lost its capacity to inspire. And I think not only that, it has this implicit insult we've been talking about because it says if you struggle, your failure is your fault. You, you didn't get a good SAT score. And you didn't get into the college that I said would lead you to advance. The second stump speech is also about hope. But the hope is about how to make life better whether or not people hit the jackpot and win the lottery, how to make life better and how to make community richer and how to make work more dignified for everyone, whether or including the majority of people who are not going to go to a prestigious college or university. Here's an example, Clay, of someone who gave that stump speech beautifully. And it was about hope, but not about the hope of the lottery and the jackpot. Robert F. Kennedy, he's one of my political heroes. When he was campaigning in 1960, uh, 1968 for the presidency, he put it this way. Fellowship, community, shared patriotism, these essential values don't come just from buying and consuming goods together. They come instead from dignified employment at decent pay, the kind of employment that enables us to say, I helped to build this country. I am a participant in its great public ventures. What we're missing in the, the lottery jackpot version of hope is the idea that Everyone who contributes to the common good through the work they do and the families they raise and the communities they serve is worthy of respect and dignity and decent pay and good health care and decent education and a voice in civic life. That is a message of hope about building a shared civic life, of giving people voice. It's not the hope of the lottery or the jackpot. And that's the shift I think we need to make. 
I, I always take listener questions, um, and and we did get a lot in for you, but I and I'm going to get to them, so I promise, sorry to my producers who were saying, get to them. Um, but I want to ask you one more quick question about division in general, because you've had the opportunity, you're in Spain now, you've taught, and you've had the opportunity to talk to people from around the world, and more than most, you have a, a, a view on political systems in a lot of other countries besides just the U.S. Um, you talked for a second about that same division that we've seen here in the United States also happening in Great Britain. Um, historically, especially over the last 10 years or so, we've seen the rise of uh, both nationalist groups and socialist groups um, opposing each other uh, in places like France and especially in Hungary and a lot of those places. But a few weeks ago, um, there was an election in Germany. Um, Germany had a similar rise of a far-left group and a far-right group in its election in 2017, I believe. But a few weeks ago, they voted again. Um, and the first example, really, like, major global example of both of the extreme parties losing favor in favor of two parties, well, very moderate uh, by comparison, um, the lefts in... Um, in Germany are the Socialist Party, the AFD, Alliance for uh, Germany, in, is the very far-right party. They had had higher numbers. They lost them. Um, first, why do you think people kind of finally gravitated back towards the middle and away from those uh, extremes in Germany? And part B of that is, is, there, is it a harbinger of hope for us <laughs> in other places that people will um, drift away from the extremes in other countries? It's, it's an interesting example. The big winners in Germany in the recent election were the uh, Social Democratic Party, which had fallen on very hard times. And that's the, the party. The center left, right? Right. That's the center left party. They're closest to our Democratic Party. Right. And the Greens. Mm -hmm. they, those were the two big winners. This was in the uh, aftermath of Angela Merkel's uh, chancellorship. And, and the first time in, in years, I mean, 16 years that she had, that her center-right party had been yeah. in charge. And right. Yes. And the Social Democrats had been uh, more or less moribund. They had fallen to their lowest level in the previous election since the Second World War. And they won this election, narrowly. But the candidate, Olaf Scholz, won. And he's now trying to form a coalition with the Greens and with one other party. The political message that he used uh, drew on the arguments from my book, The Tyranny of Merit. And in fact, he invited me to have a dialogue back in the winter to discuss the themes and how they might apply to Germany. And he incorporated them into his campaign, into his stump speech, Clay. And he talked, uh, he, he talked about the way in which working people resent uh, elites and how narrowly we define merit to refer to the professional classes, how we need to shift to greater respect and recognition for working people who really make the economy and the society work, how university education isn't the only route to valuable contribution and respect. And that message uh, helped him, along with other personal qualities, uh, win the election and lift the Social Democratic Party from near oblivion to the brink of being able to form a government with the Greens and with one other party. So I do think there is a hopeful um, lesson there for politicians in, in the American political spectrum, somewhere between Biden and Bernie Sanders. And there's a surprising degree of overlap, I think, between Biden's uh, early proposals and Bernie's, but more than that, it's the message, it's the theme. It's less emphasis on credentialism, less emphasis on catering to professional elites, uh, less emphasis on telling people the solution to their problems is simply to uh, uh, get a better education, and more emphasis on the dignity of work, on respect for everyone's contributions, and on bending the tax system and the economy and spending priorities in ways that reflect that, Clay. 
So the answer really is, if more people would read your book, then we, we well, politicians would read your book, we'd be a better place. I mean, that's okay. I'm okay with saying that. That's fine. <laughs> it worked in Germany is what we're saying. And so, so it would work here. I, I, listen, I was always a Sherrod Brown fan. I wish he had run for president. Uh, yep. And who knows, maybe he will uh, at some point. But um, I'm perfectly satisfied with Biden. I'm not going to have time for too many of them, so I'm going to do quick rounds. Carrie from Nashville asks, has social media made the national debate more accessible or destroyed it? It's, it's been a damaging force on the whole. It's, been, it's reinforced the fragmentation. It's uh, reinforced uh, kind of uh, the, the public discourse of epithet and insult, and we need to find <laughs> alternatives. In, in, the main, in, the, in the media, the established media, but also using online platforms, we have to find ways to provide... Uh, uh, the kind of dialogue that can elevate the terms of public discourse. Okay, and Sarah from Austin asks, who are your, fa- two parts, two, who are your favorite philosophers and is there one who stands out as being particularly relevant to our current times? I'm fascinated for that second answer especially. Well, here's one, goes back quite a long way, Aristotle in, in ancient Greece. I mean, so many political philosophers uh, set great store by Aristotle, and I'm one of them. And here's the insight he had that I think can be a kind of corrective to our contemporary politics. He said that citizenship wasn't just about voting, but it was about being equipped to deliberate with fellow citizens about the common good, to reason together across differences, about the meaning of a just society, about what we owe one another as citizens, uh, about common purposes and ends. And he recognized, and this is an, uh, an important corrective to the way we think about merit, he said that excellence in governing isn't just a technocratic matter. It's not just a matter of technocratic expertise or being a, a, an economist with a, a fancy degree. You have to understand people. You have to understand community. You have to understand their aspirations. You have to begin by connecting with people where they are. So he emphasized political rhetoric. He emphasized public deliberation. And he emphasized a kind of leadership that was bound up with civic virtue, with moral argument, not just technocratic ways of thinking about politics. And I, I think that's, uh, that could be an important corrective for the way we think about politics today, Clay. I wish people would do more Seneca reading and just calm mm-hmm. the hell down on <laughs> 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 some stuff because I think we get uh, – I, I, it's why I love talking to folks like you because too often I think we get too – well, sometimes we get passionate about things we don't even – aren't normally even passionate about, but we get very overworked and get yeah. far too quick to anger and argue than, than to, to actually have discussion and discourse. Um, and I mean, that's what you get to do for a living, getting people to talk. And you've talked a lot about, uh, about the, the downfall or the, the loss of actual good debate in, um, in our society these days. And I think that people, I would love to, see more people take time to listen to other people's ideas, whether they agree with them or not, and have real thoughtful discussions without just getting mad for the sake of getting mad and <laughs> letting their tempers flare for that reason. Um, you know, we've talked on this show a whole bunch, um, to those of you who are, who are listening in, about trying to get away from believing that our divisions are just about um, politics or just about race or just about what all the other issues are, um, uh, any other specific issues, and try to boil it down into some of the things that we, some of the ways that we are still divided, but that could bring other parties, certain parties that are certainly currently currently divided together. And I think that what um, Dr. Sindel has done in his book, uh, and I want to get the... by the second line of it, the after the colon part, correct. It's called The Tyranny of Merit, but the, um, the subtitle is what, Dr. Sindel? I have it here in my paper somewhere. It is, Can We Find the Common Good? Ah, 
the tyranny of merit. Can we find the common good? Um, you know, if you if you listen to this show, I urge you to go pick up a copy of this. Um, uh, if bookstores still exist in your neighborhood, get them there. If not, you can get them. On, you can get it on uh, all the online places. But it's you know we spend so much time on this show talking about those divisions, and I think we do not allow ourselves the thoughtful time to think about really what might divide us that we're not talking about. And that's what's exciting about what you continue to do, but certainly what you've done in this book. You are a philosopher. You have to answer this without asking a question. You've done very beautifully at that already, but how the heck are we going to get along, doctor? We, the only way we can hope to get along is to rediscover the lost art of democratic public discourse. What passes for public discourse these days consists mainly of shouting matches, ideological food fights on the floors of Congress, uh, rude insults hurled on cable television and talk radio. I think there's a great hunger for a better, morally more robust kind of public discourse, one that doesn't shrink from big questions of values and ethics, but that embraces them and that uh, enables us to reason together about big questions that matter. I think that's what the public wants. I think that's why we're so frustrated with the existing terms of public discourse. And I think that's the only way we're going to learn from one another and the only way we're going to have a chance of saving the now increasingly fragile democratic hopes that most of us aspire to.